Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. And I wanted to mention that if you would like to connect with me directly, you can always do so at MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. I see and answer every single contact personally, and I would truly love to hear from you. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Lise Wilcox believes the key to greater contentment is found through healing your relationship with yourself. She's a coach who works with high-achieving, purpose-driven women, and she's changing the global conversation around self-love and emotional health. Lise's deep understanding of the human experience comes not only from her education, but also from her own personal story of turning difficult experiences like divorce, narcissistic abuse, and breast cancer into something beautiful. For me personally, the most empowering message during our conversation today is that wealth is more than just a number in the bank. When you have clarity in what you want, confidence in who you are, and the courage to stay true to both, you're able to close that gap between self-worth and net worth, and finally feel like you're enough. Please welcome the very brave, Lise Wilcox. I was doing some work uh, researching for Lise before we had her on the show today, and her profile says she moved from Toronto to this charming little beach community. I'm like, yeah, me too. We both live in Coburg. Coburg rocks. Um, Lise, I'm going to please ask you to introduce yourself because the way you speak about yourself is likely a thousand percent better. So over to you, my dear. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. So thanks very much. It is very rare to connect with somebody else in Coburg, also strangely by Instagram. Um, Basically, I help women make more money. Uh, I am a strategic life and business coach and have been for about 10 years. And I really specifically focus on helping people identify and eliminate self-sabotaging patterns that are holding them back and keeping them playing small. I love it. And man, do I ever need you in my life. Oh, (laughs) funny story. When you reached out to me originally to say, hey, I think we should know each other. And do you happen to live in Coburg? I was walking (laughs) to my psychotherapist's office. So it was kind of like, oh, the universe is just delivering exactly what I need, exactly when I needed it. Um, Let's let's do a, a level set for the audience leads. What's the backstory? Can can you start with that? And then we'll talk about where that has led you in terms of your journey and the mm-hmm. work that you're doing for helping women make more money. Of course. So as I said, about 10 years ago, closer to eight, I suppose, um, I was in my like seven bedroom house, lying on the ground with my three beautiful daughters, looking at my perfect kitchen and my perfect life. And I had this really gut-wrenching awareness that this didn't feel like enough for me. And I really had that feeling where I guess I had that thought out loud that was like, if this isn't enough for me, what the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah. And I heard this, what I would say, like a divine download. It sounded like a little divine whisper that said, nothing will be enough for you until you are enough for you. And in that moment... I knew I had to make some significant changes in my life. So that was the catalyst. 
I called time of death on my marriage. I confronted all the narcissistic abuse from my past and at the time present and started reinventing myself literally overnight. And I went from being an at-home mom of three young girls to working with... The story is that in my first iteration, I had been a Montessori teacher. And so I had all this information about parenting and parent education and family education. And so when I moved out here, I decided to write a parenting column for the newspaper. And I wanted people to read the column, so I turned it into a blog. And then I wanted people to read the blog, so I turned it into an Instagram account. So I got really good at using Instagram. So ultimately, as a part of this epic reinvention, I started working with women who were running small to medium uh, businesses and started helping them what I thought was going to be like a like a boutique creative agency, kind of helping them with sales and marketing and, and Instagram. But what happened almost 100 times out of 100 is that they would look at my business partner and they'd want to talk to her about sales and marketing. And they would look at me and be like, I don't know how to do this. Like my mom said, I'm never creative, but I feel creative, but I don't know how to be creative. Or my husband doesn't believe that this is anything more than a hobby. And I just feel like I have so much on the line to prove him wrong. And I kind of accidentally started life coaching from there. So while I was kind of going through the process of figuring out my own stuff, I would gather and share, gather and share, gather and share. And over the better part of a decade, have built like a multiple six-figure international coaching business specifically focused on women, executives, entrepreneurs. Wow. <laughs> In my notes about you, Lee, as we talk about how your family, when you were growing up, was the perfect looking family. So this is when you were mm-hmm. smaller. This was not your you being the mama. This is you being the child in the family. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Because I don't want to dwell on the negativity, but I think it's important that we understand what that story is to show exactly mm-hmm. your lived experience in this area. So how, how, how does that story go in terms of you and your sisters, stepsisters, I guess? Right. Stepsisters. And I guess technically half-sisters, but they felt more like stepsisters. But um, So I grew up wealthy, but I always felt poor. So despite the fact that we had these external trappings of wealth, my father was a physician. He was chief of staff at our hospital. We went on like an annual ski vacation. Uh, my stepsisters, stepsisters were riding horses competitively when they weren't at private school. Like I didn't notice it, but we had this really wealthy life. But my reality was, you know, I was working at least two jobs since I was 12. Um, I paid for everything. I was not allowed to go to private school because my parents, quote unquote, couldn't afford it (laughs) for me. And this is not like, oh no, I couldn't go to private school. Everybody feels sorry for me. It's just this stark contrast in realities that Two of the three children in our household grew up wealthy, and one of those three children um, felt poor all the time. And, you know, it wasn't just like an absence or a scarcity or a lack of material things or having to be independent financially from a very early age. It was the messaging of, you are not good enough, nothing will ever be good enough, Um, there's like, we have all these expectations of you, but we know you're never going to meet them. You're not smart enough. You'll never live in a house like this again. You're not capable. Like, there were just so many terrible messages and, and juxtaposed with this 
bizarro reality that, you know, we had this beautiful house and this like perfect looking life. My parents were really upstanding members of the community, but inside it was, it was my personal hell. It was just like nothing but emotional and psychological abuse every day, except for Christmas day, every single year. So many questions. So, so here's, (laughs) here's a couple of easy ones. How old were you during this time? Like 12 to 18? No, that was that started at age six. So that happened when a stepmother moved in. Um, before that, my life was actually amazing. And we were really close as an extended family. And it was just, it was so beautiful. And then everything, you know, that record scratching moment we sometimes get that when I was six, there was like a record scratch where it was just like overnight, everything was just completely different. And I... I moved out when I was 18 and never went back, um, but wasn't fully prepared to... (sighs) Setting boundaries doesn't like give it enough weight and enough gravity, but I guess I wasn't prepared to set those really next level boundaries until probably early 30s. Why not Christmas Day? Why was that particular day something that you mentioned as... I was not good enough, abused emotionally in the worst and most narcissistic of ways, except on Christmas. What happened on Christmas? No idea. And I think this is the complexity of mental health. I'm not an expert in mental health, but if I had to weigh in, um, there was something about Christmas Day that the abuser was like, nope doesn't count on Christmas. And I think that is honestly still part of why I love Christmas so much. Cause (laughs) like, it's so funny, like Christmas Eve, nope. Christmas Eve was bad. Boxing day was the worst, but Christmas day was like, I was equal and good enough and loved on that one one day every year. And so I really just clung to it. So your father was your biological father, and it was the stepmama yeah. who came to the party with two kids, or your father had two children with her? The latter. So they had two children together. Okay. And if it's true, I so believe it's true, being raised by a narcissistic mom, that you marry the devil you know. <laughs> yes. In my case, I did that. Is is that where you went, Lise, in terms of your marriage when you eventually married? Definitely. And was ultimately the, like the inevitable cause of divorce or the cause of inevitable divorce. So when you left that lying on the floor with your three beautiful children and this beautiful home, yet you just had this existential moment of, (laughs) nope, this is not, (laughs) this is not making me happy. This is not what I want. What was the journey for you, Lise, in terms of then starting to put one foot in front of each other, getting out of the marriage, and starting to go to the deeper place of healing yourself? I mean, it was a process. Um, A lot of it was hellish. (laughs) Most of it was hellish. Uh, It was also really exciting and adventurous. But there again, I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over. It was an incredibly challenging period of time. And, you know, I was on my own in a small town raising three kids and there's a, there are a lot of complexities in there. And, um, part way through, 
let me just try to think, I think probably two years into this reinvention process and like I could feel the momentum and I was making a name for myself, um, I got breast cancer. And so all of a sudden, all of this momentum and this single parenting while self-employed, I'd become another homeowner or I'd become a homeowner again, this time on my own. I just had all this responsibility and out of nowhere got this breast cancer diagnosis. And it was, I think it was, I think it was probably the experience of of cancer that I was pretty open about sharing um, that really galvanized my positioning as an expert and an authority in emotional health, wellness, resiliency. Um, during my chemo treatments, I had this like very dark humor awareness that I'd been wanting to write a book for so long. And it was always like, oh, I just don't have time. Like, what am I gonna have time to write a book? And all of a sudden being in treatment five to six hours a week, every other week, I was like, ha, huh, guess I just found that time. So I wrote a full book proposal while I was in treatment and I launched my own podcast during that time too. So it was like this really dark, unknown time of just complete reinvention that I was able to create myself. And like, I know a few other people use this as well, uh, but the term emotional alchemy to really turn something that was like dark, ugly, unwanted and and turn it into something that's gold, beautiful and uniquely your own. I feel like that really encapsulated that whole experience for me. Yeah, I feel you on that. The book that you wrote, To Call Myself Beloved or Beloved. Yes. A story of hope, healing, and coming home. Yes. So will you sign a copy for me at some point, please? I will. <laughs> and how's your health now? It's great. So you're cancer-free, everything yeah. is good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And um, interestingly, so cancer kind of wrapped up. It felt like I had a, it was like a year's experience worth of cancer. It was like, that was it for me. So I was pretty lucky. I did do a... a, a when you're 36 and you get breast cancer, it's really aggressive and the treatment is equally as aggressive. So I made the decision to go completely flat without any reconstruction as well. So there was a major surgery involved, but that said, it was still about a year, a year and a half worth of being distracted by cancer. So that passed. I got back into the momentum of building my business. I wrote a second book kind of that picked up where that one left off. Um, and it's really about the, it's called Alone, The Truth and Beauty of Belonging. And it's really about this feeling of isolation that so many of us feel in our marriages, in parenting, in entrepreneurship, and in being single. I'd been single for way longer than I anticipated. We were heading into, we were in actually a full-blown pandemic and it was just all of our isolation was just totally pronounced. Um, and so I wrote that book, that one came out. And I guess a couple of years later, I met my new partner. I've like pivoted the business to be really focused on, working with me always feels like kind of business therapy, but I specifically pivoted the business to really help women focus on their financial health from an emotional wealth perspective. And I so need you in my life because when we first chatted before we started recording this episode of the podcast, the things you were saying were just so, they resonated so much with me. Wealth is more than just a number in the bank. It's when you have clarity mm -hmm. in what you want, confidence in who you are, and the courage to stay true to both. 
you're able to close the gap between self-worth and net worth. Yes. Seemingly the big question in the room is, why do women have such a, as a general paintbrush statement, Mm -hmm. why do so many women have such a toxic, negative, complicated relationship with money? The patriarchy. (laughs) Okay, there's next question. We'll just move on. (laughs) I honestly, because we've been, because we've been told that we're bad at money, because we've been excluded from the conversation, because we've been excluded from the table where conversations happen. You know, I think I shared with you pre-recording that 1974 was the first year that women were quote unquote allowed to have a mortgage or a credit card in their own name without a male co-signer. Like that's not that long ago. That is not that long ago. And that is just terrifying as, as it's terrifying. So not at the table. So I don't know about your upbringing, Lise, but when, when, when you were raised by your father and your stepmom, was it just, no, you're, we're not going to teach you about money. We're not going to talk to you about money. We're not going to do anything with you about money because somebody will come along and marry you and then you'll be looked after. Or what was this, what was no. that narrative like? we're going to set you up to fail at every possible opportunity. So because I was expect, and the irony, oh, and I don't like giving them credit for this, but I will. But the (laughs) irony is that in, like I have been working since I was 12 and I'm not kidding. For most of those years, it was two to three jobs at a time. So when it wasn't a newspaper route, it was nannying before school, going to school full-time and then having a couple of part-time jobs after school plus random babysitting gigs, right? Even at university, because I went to I went to Queens and studied sociology, because I was in the arts, most of my classes started at two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm a morning person, so I would get up and go to work full time at a bakery and then do my full time classes. So I all I've always been really good at making money. I always had money coming in, but the my I guess my parents' perspective, like I had this this crazy work ethic and still do because I just had to work all the time and I was responsible for everything. The glitch was that I had all this financial freedom and responsibility, but absolutely no idea how to manage it. So there was an instance where my stepmother knew that I had spent way too much money and um, encouraged me to apply to a school in Italy, knowing that it was like a $2,000 non-refundable application fee. And she also knew I would be too terrified to tell her I didn't have the funds. So I went through the process just so that she could, like, prove me wrong after the fact. So it was that kind of so many tests that I would never, ever, ever have been able to pass. And, you know, giving a 16-year-old carte blanche with the thousands of dollars she's making with saying, yeah, you have to save half of it, but never checking in on where that saving is going is not, like, it's not okay. And if our job as parents is to really be the the guide to our kids' lives, that's not, that's irresponsible. That's not teaching anybody anything about wellness, health, financial responsibility, nothing. And so what did you do with this money that you were earning having two, three jobs I spent it uh, on <laughs> like I just <laughs> just blew it on clothes, jeans, yeah. going out with friends. There was a moment 
there was a moment at university. Um, it was weird. My housemates and I had a house that was off campus, mm-hmm. but it still walked everywhere, of course. And I would pass the gap to and from uh, work. So twice a day, I would go past the gap. And our house didn't have any laundry facilities. So I remember stopping at the gap to buy clothes instead of doing laundry. Like it's not, it was not good. I still managed to pay for school. Um, my parents helped with tuition, but I paid for everything else. But um, I just, I just spent it. And it was like, you know, my own toxic self-sabotage trait is it feels so good freeing and powerful to have cash that I would, I, it was like I was trying to buy my freedom and buy my power. Um, and so overspending is still, like it's such a default pattern of mine that I consciously have to work at now. And I have so many better tools and resources, of course, but but that's what I did. I like, it just spent it. It came in, it went out. It came in, it went out. Oh, I can relate. The women, <laughs> the women, I can totally relate. The women that you're working with now, patriarchy as a broad statement is the mm-hmm. reason that so many women don't have a grasp of how to save, mm-hmm. where to save, what to do. How does it present itself in the clients that you're working with in terms of, is there a couple of different personas you could sort of describe mm-hmm. to the audience around, I see this kind of behavior, then I see mm-hmm. that kind of behavior, just to give us a sense of it. I think the blanket statement is is fear. So 37% of men, if they're asked to use one word to describe how they feel about money, will be confident. They'll be like, confident. That same cohort, so 37% of women, if they're asked to use one word to describe how they feel about money, it's overwhelmed. The disparity there for me in my clients shows up in being afraid, be feeling under-resourced. And it, then it starts to go in two directions. One is that they feel like they can never, like they'll never be enough. They can never have enough. So they got to keep like earning and spending, earning and spending because nothing is ever enough. Or their sense of self-worth, as was mine, is so low that they have themselves capped at like, well, I could only ever make $50,000 a year. That's as, that's as good as it gets for me. Man, if I could make $60,000 a year, that would be outrageous. So it's like they, they trap themselves playing so small because every part of their nervous system is telling them, that's what's safe. It's what they've always known. They've always been like a worthless piece of shit operating in the background. And so even when they're running businesses, they can't charge anybody any money. They take on way too many clients. They overgive, overgive, overgive because that's what women are supposed to do. They're supposed to be selfless and be totally service oriented. You know, only one third of women are ever comfortable even talking about money. So when you add shame on top of there, you experience all of this in isolation. So now you're not making any money in your business, but you have to keep up the illusion and the appearance that you are. And you're drowning in shame and guilt without any access to community or camaraderie or like exploring a different way. And so I think that is, I like, I tend to work with high net worth women. So even the women who are making multiple six figures are still in that mind frame of, you know, I did everything right. I checked all the boxes. So how can this doesn't feel like it's 
enough? How come it feels like I never have enough money? And so we really look at what are your core values and how do you define what enough looks and feels like for you specifically so that you know where to draw the line in the sand. I had a client not that long ago who um, I asked her that question, like, what would enough feel like for you? And she was like, it would be me making half a million bucks a year, spending most of my time at my lake house, and then otherwise being with my kids at our at our house out west. And she took a minute and she was like, that is my life. So I'm going to stop. Like, I'm going to just give myself permission right now to just enjoy it and stop chasing more. Making half a million bucks a year is a, is pretty fantastic, right? Owning multiple properties, it's pretty fantastic. The reality for her is that it didn't feel like enough until we actually brought her attention to that. And so that moment of freedom there came from being able to stop chasing. Clients that I work with um, in the the course that I have um, online, it's specifically designed for folks who aren't yet making 100K and it's really looking at our emotional relationship with money and What's our money story of origin? So like, what did your mom teach you? What did your dad teach you? What are your current feelings about money? How would you personify it? What would that relationship look and feel like? I feel like so many women just don't have the language to describe how they feel about or how they relate to money. And they're told to put it in a vacuum where they're not ever allowed to discuss it. Right. So there's like this full spectrum. It's never, money stuff is never about money stuff. It is always about an emotional relationship to money. It's always, like it should be under the, the category of psychology mm. and not math when we teach it. Absolutely. Because it's so linked, at least it feels like it, the way you're describing it, Lise, is that your net worth and your self-worth are inextricably linked. So for mm. the second category of women that you were discussing, it's like, they don't pay themselves enough. They don't charge enough for their services because they're not worth it because they were trained mm-hmm. or raised to be, you're not of value. So they'd lower mm-hmm. their own self-esteem, their own value outbound to the services they're providing to clients. Completely, completely. Now I, I work with mostly entrepreneurs. I have worked with everybody in the C-suite. And, you know, again, the story... It's like the same theme, but it changes the story differently when you're self-employed versus when you're an executive. And I'm sure you've seen from your own career how how it presents itself in the boardroom when you're a woman surrounded by a table full of men and you're making 30 to 40% less. Yeah. Or they just decide not to give you your bonus, as was the case with me coming out of the ad business of, well, yeah, you hit your numbers, but no. I'm just like, why? Yeah. And you get that same feeling of, well, because you're not worth it. And when you're yeah. dealing with multi-million dollar corporations in the ad business, well, yeah, go ahead, sue us. You can sue us all day long. Our pockets are so deep, yeah. you'll spend your bonus times 10 trying to get your bonus. So good luck with that. I had a client recently who, again, she's in the C-suite, and, and she was asked to take notes at the meeting. And like, she also has an MBA and she also has 25 years of executive experience compared and contrasted to their new male CEO who has 
I don't even know if he has an MBA, but just a couple of years of work experience. And yet they defaulted to her, the only woman at the table to start taking notes. Like it's just, so, you know, it's the patriarchy is the simplest answer to this question. And then all of the tendrils, like multi-generational systemic tendrils, like there are just so many tendrils that, that keep women in this state of being oppressed often not even knowing it. Like we're so, we're so institutionalized to the inequity of how we're paid and how we, how we see our sense of value. Most women, I would argue, don't even know it. They don't even notice it. They're not conscious of it. This is just the way life is. (sighs) Completely. So I'm going to jump back and not, I don't want any details of your divorce, but how did this present itself in your in your divorce? Were you, I'm asking for a reason, did you, you kind of step back and say, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I'm not worth it. I'm not deserving of the various. Yes, that is what I did. And I'm a much different person now than I was then. And that was one of, you know, I, I'm a mom of three girls. And so I have these like, This is so meta. I have a relationship to each of these relationships. So I have a relationship to, you know, the professional who coaches women how to do this. I have a relationship to the mom who's raising the next generation of women being like, okay, not on my watch. And then I have this relationship to myself and trying to, not so much anymore, but I felt like I was constantly trying to play catch up and like come out of all this crap from the past and just be here in the present. So there's been this wild evolution for me personally, but it has unfolded itself concurrently as a professional. And then again, underline as a mom of three young women, making sure that we we like flip all the tables over and we just do it so much differently now. And how old are your girls now? Uh, 13, 11, and 11. Oh, perfect. And so how do you approach the topic of cash money with these girls at the age that they're at. So they, I mean, for you and I, we were working at that age, but they probably aren't. How do you instill this wisdom, knowledge, self-worth in them at this point? So for my kids, the self-worth and net worth, they always go hand in hand. So there are a lot, my, often my kids will be like, stop coaching me and I will stop coaching them. (laughs) But there's, there's so much of that talk at our dinner table, my husband is an incredible man and he's so supportive of this too. Um, and so there's just lots of like, you know, using your voice and no is a complete sentence. Like if you don't, if that person invited you to her birthday party and you don't want to go, let's find a way of you for to gracefully say no rather than force you into like all the stories that we were raised with as young girls, right? But also on the more like wealth IQ side, so how do we actually use money as a tool? Um the girls are poignantly aware that it's about cost, not value. And I will like preach that till the cows come home, that it's it's never about cost, it's about value. So when they're shopping, their age group is really into Lululemon. I had no idea this was going to happen, um, but we talk about the cost per wear. So if you're going to buy a pair of $100 leggings, is it really worth it? How many times are you going to wear them? Well, if you're wearing those every day, it ends up being like $2 a wear totally worth it. If you're going to buy a $100 pair of, I don't know, electric blue pants, and you're only going to wear them once, probably not really worth it because the cost is so much higher per wear. But we also have this super fun thing called the Bank of the Benevolent Dictator. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. <laughs> this just sounds like your next book here, Lise. Bank of the Benevolent Dictator. I, I'm, oh, I love it. I'm dying. I'm dying here. Tell me everything about the Bank of the Benevolent oh. Dictator. So it's basically a spreadsheet for each of the kids, and we track how much they have coming in, and they and we track how much they have coming out. And I pay them, I think, like 5% interest on their balance so they can see, like, they're so incentivized to keep that money in there to keep making this, like, wild compound interest in there. But it also gives them a really great sense of being able to track, like, oh, how come I don't have any spending money? Oh, right, because I actually did want the Nike Air Forces and I got them. So it's like, um, that's what we use for, like, a money management tool. Um, (laughs) My eldest daughter does have a job. She um, babysits part-time and she works at her dance studio in the summer. And so all the money that she makes, we split it in two and we put that into her physical bank account and then she gets to keep the rest in, in spending. And the other two girls are getting allowance. Is that how it worked? Everybody gets allowance, um, again, as a money management tool. So we have, <laughs> they have a lot of chores, which they hate, but the chores and allowance are not linked together. I found even as a Montessori teacher, what I learned is like, if you incentivize kids with a reward, if you take one day when they're like, okay, well, I don't don't care about this 10 bucks. So I guess I just won't vacuum. It doesn't work out well for anybody, right? They're expected to do chores because it's how we take care of our house. It's just, it's how we live as a community and as a family. And it's how we keep our house cared for. And then allowance is really a money management tool. So you know, you have this coming in, you can start to budget ahead. Um, I take... Uh, I take one of my daughters to New York once a quarter. So like we do a separate mommy and and me trip once a quarter um, individually. So they know that, you know, they have this many months of allowance or birthday money coming in. Um, What are they saving for to do in New York, for example? I wish I had had you in my life when I was (laughs) 12, 13, doing my first jobs and I don't know where that money is. That's the terrifying yeah. thing, like what you say. Yes. I have no, I was making big bank and I have no idea where that money is. Just ridiculous. Yeah. And nothing to show for it. I nothing. know. Nothing. No, nothing. I know. Um, how do you handle charity, uh, generosity in terms of charitable giving or volunteering or how is that handled in the the bank of the benevolent dictator? <laughs> <laughs> It's mostly through their school. So there is a lot of need at their school. There are a a startling amount of families in need. And so, you know, we've donated to the breakfast program before. We'll help, like, fund an extra school trip, that, that kind of thing. Like, it doesn't even have to be much. It's just helping somebody else anonymously doing something that they're doing. For me, I think that makes the biggest connection piece and the, with the most empathy because they're really lucky. Like they they do have a family of privilege and they are able to like, I flip and take one of them to New York once a quarter, right? Like they're pretty lucky. And they can see the impact of kids not able to do that, not able to go on a field trip, not get school hot lunch, all those things. And so we, tra- we tend to focus our, our charitable giving to what's like really boots on the ground for their experience. And that makes sense because then they can Mm -hmm. see, if you will, they can see the charitable giving in action in terms of making a difference in people's lives in a school where they're all participating. Exactly. Tell me about your podcast. I want to hear all about your podcast. 
I mean, I know about it it's, and I've listened to some episodes, obviously, but <laughs> but the genesis of it and 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 just what you love about doing a podcast. I love long form content and that, that's where the podcast comes in. So I've basically split it into three seasons because I've shifted direction, uh, shifted directions of my business over the years. Um, and so right now, season three, it's like kind of a brand new iteration of podcast, but it's called Loving Money, the podcast with Lise Wilcox. And it really goes into all the different aspects of, of wealth EQ and really looking at our emotional relationship um, to our money. Wow. Fantastic. Um. Talk to me about the year you spent $12,000 on vintage jackets. Oh my, it was so fun. It was so fun. <laughs> it was so fun is how I would describe it. I, Man, I was fresh post-divorce and it felt like all of a sudden I had a chance to live the 20s that I never had a chance to live. And I, I, had, I had a really close friend who... I'm not blaming her by any means, but wow, did she ever enable me to just bleed myself dry. So whenever I did not have my children, we would like skip off to Toronto or we'd skip off to Chicago. Uh, We went on a road trip to New York City to go to a gallery opening. And anywhere we were, we just happened to find ourselves in a vintage vintage store. Um, I have a really curvy, oversized body that can be sometimes tough to dress. So jackets are like an essential staple for me because they're so much easier to buy than like regular clothes. And all of a sudden I had a closet full of like boiled wool capes and fur stoles and vintage fur jackets. And it was just, I got myself into a significant amount of debt because we were having so much bloody fun together. I'm not proud of it, but man, it was fun. (laughs) I brought that up because I wondered if you've gone deeper on this and, and the answer could be simply no, but I wonder if you've gone deeper on this why vintage jackets? Was there something way, way, way back about jackets or or I, I, something you really wanted when you were a kid? Is there some connection that that was the thing? I don't think so, but a lot of us who are overspenders, what we're really trying to buy, you know, we mentioned freedom, power, um, joy, we're really trying to buy ourselves a sense of safety and security. So that on top of being in a vintage store, and we were just, you know, we we're like stylish girls, you know, we like to go to the thrift stores. And when you're you're in the city and you're poking through the shop, you get a massive dopamine high when you find something, you really feel like you found a treasure. So when you're there with a friend who's like, no, that is perfect on you. You could wear it in all these number of scenarios. It's just this, like, it becomes this almost addiction, right? You're just, you're so caught up in the moment. And again, for me, I think it was just, it was really difficult to find vintage clothing that I could fit into, Um, but jackets were like a no-brainer. And so it was just this combination of how do I, in in an otherwise absolute chaotic time of life, how do I create a sense of safety and security oh, we'll just go and have fun and live on this like wave of dopamine that presented itself in <laughs> vintage coats. In, 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 this, in the form of, of, of vintage jackets. 
Liz, you talk about how each of us is self-sabotaging in some area of our life, at least before coming to work with you, see you, discuss life with you <laughs> in advance. This is pre-Lee's conversations. Um, <laughs> usually, I, I usually the self-sabotaging takes the form of in money, in relationships, and in health. C- can mm-hmm. you possibly elaborate on what the hell are we doing as humans self-sabotaging mm-hmm. ourselves in these important areas in our life? Why are we doing this? Or what have you seen in terms of reasons mm-hmm. why people do this? This is my genius zone. So thanks for asking. Oh, good. Um, I, this is I, this is like... <laughs> Came across it the quite by happens. accident. Okay. <laughs> no, this is completely where the magic happens because self-sabotage is, is not a consciously negative thing. When we are self-sabotaging, what we're actually trying to do is create or preserve safety. So if you imagine when you're under the age of six, And it's like your brain is this freshly fallen sheet of snow. You're just running around effortlessly making little tracks and patterns wherever you go, not paying attention at all. And around age six or seven, those footprints, it's like there's a flash freeze and they're now iced into place. We both know that, of course, you can make new footprints in that crunchy, icy snow, but it's a lot harder. It's sweaty. It's uncomfortable. Sometimes you cut your leg on the the ice. Like it's not, it's not pleasant. The brain wants to do things that are easy because easy feels really good. Physiologically, it feels great. So your brain wants you just to keep taking those old pathways over and over again because it just feels good. At the same time, our unconscious is, it's like we have this built-in security system. So physiologically, when you get that feeling, you know, you're walking alone at night, you just get that eerie feeling that you shouldn't go down that street. That's your unconscious safety system sweeping the environment, telling you, nope, not safe. Same thing if somebody raises a knife at you or they raise their voice in a public place. Like you have a physiological response to get the fuck out of there, right? Like we freeze, flee, we go into fright or we go into fawning, people-pleasing mode. So our brain wants us to stay on this path that is really easy because that's the way we've always done it. And we have an unconscious alarm system that alerts us to danger anytime we're doing things differently. So anytime we're about to do something new, we actually perceive that in our body, in our nervous system, in our unconscious as a threat to our physical safety, health, and well-being. So behavior change is unbelievably hard because we can want to lose weight or we can want to make more money, or we can want to be a better partner. But if those old footprints in the snow, those old patterns are the opposite of that, everything in our nervous system and our physiology is going to keep us doing what we've always done. So that's why I'm so good at what I do. <laughs> yeah, and so you are because I, I've just had the biggest moment of enlightenment and I'm so thrilled you described it as footprints in the snow because it's like Excellent. a story and a visualization where yeah. I can see that and I can feel that when you have to step on those frozen, it rained overnight on top of the snow and now it's cutting yes. cutting my ankles and it's icy and it's hard. <laughs> yes. 
everything you said completely makes sense. I'm really glad. That is, that's the point. And there's been such a rhetoric, you know, right now the self-help and personal growth industry is like an $11 billion industry and it's projected to hit $15 billion by 2025. So people are making, or they're trying to make a lot of change, right? But I'm so interested, like, why is it such a growing industry? Like, aren't these people just making the change? Like, how is it still such a ballooning mega industry? Well, mindset has become, you know, the most overused, over-troped, over-printed on tea towel. Mindset is everything. No, it isn't. Mindset is about 10% of how we make behavior changes. The other 90% happens in your body, in your nervous system, in your unconscious. And once we get that on lock, then mindset is like the last 10% that we need to change. Everything else is hidden beneath the surface, but it's really, really easy to sell mindset. And it's a lot harder to sell actual behavior change because it takes place at such a deep, almost therapeutic level. Wow. And this all tremendously makes sense. So with your clients who are self-sabotaging around money specifically, Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you suggest they begin the behavioral changes that are so endemic to making a successful move in the right direction? Well, we look at the stories a lot. So we look at values and we look at the stories. Like what are the stories that you're telling yourself about this thing? And when I work with somebody one-on-one, we can actually take one behavior pattern and break it down. So I don't know, do you eat microwave popcorn or have you ever eaten microwave popcorn? Yes, of course. Like You could go and just make microwave popcorn without paying attention to anything because it's probably on such autopilot, right? But if I asked you to break it down for me step-by-step as if I've never seen a microwave or a bag of popcorn before, you would have to be like, okay, well, the first thing you do is you take it out of the wrapper. Wait, no, you take it out of the cupboard, then you take it out of the wrapper, then you got to put it in the microwave, then you got to press the... Like there's an actual sequence of events that you follow, you just don't notice that you follow. Well, our behavior patterns are like that too. So when I work with somebody one-on-one, we take a behavior pattern and we break it down to like an annoyingly granular look at the minutiae of that algorithm that happens unconsciously. So, you know, with dating and relationships, it would look like, you know, I, I, I do this, I get myself ready, I go out when I see a really charming guy, I shut down and I turn around and I walk away. And so it's like, oh, okay, so what's the story and the pattern that we have to interrupt in that moment? For money, we start to look at, you know, is it an overspending problem? Is it an under-earning problem? Is it almost like an over-saving problem where people are too afraid to ever spend or enjoy their money? And we start to look at how do your values connect to that? If you're somebody who saves and saves and saves and is terrified of spending, or you find yourself saying like, I could never afford that. I could never take that trip. That'll never be for me. We want to look really clearly at your relationship to joy and how you see yourself worth. And do you feel deserving of good things happening to you? Like it gets so layered that we look at the story behind the story And then we use all of that information and context to then interrupt that pattern. So the pattern, that little, those footprints in the snow, let's say they keep leading you to the compost bin. Your brain wants you to go to the ugly, stinky, smelly compost bin. Once you're aware that you're allowed to do it differently, but that it's going to feel challenging, we can actually use mindset to be like, all right, I'm going to follow this path 
And instead of going all the way to the compost bin, I'm going to forge a new pathway over to the gate so I can go somewhere different, right? We can actually start to create a different pattern because we now have the conscious awareness of your unconscious behavior. So I'm going to ask you what bravery means to you, Lise, please. What does bravery mean to you? There's no right answer to this question, by the way, obviously. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great question. And for me, I think that bravery is like the audacity to listen to yourself and, and, you know, having the courage to trust what you alone know is right for you. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. How can people connect with you, follow you, hire you, buy your book, listen to your podcast? This is the please do all the call outs for <laughs> if they want to follow you, connect with you and, and learn more about the incredible work that you're doing. How would they go about doing that, please? LeaseWilcox.com is the hub. Um, and like podcast is there, books are there, books are on Amazon Indigo too, but that everything is on the site. Um, and because I am so passionate about helping women make more money, you can also download my signature pricing strategy because no woman ever charges what she's actually worth. It's a free download. It's a training with me. It's like a 30-minute video and it literally breaks down how flipping easy it is to actually charge what you're worth. And so that's on the website too, which I encourage everybody, (laughs) everybody to check out um, because it's such a valuable tool and it's so simple, it'll make you mad. (laughs) So leasewilcox.com, books, podcast, how to charge what you're worth. And Instagram, because you mentioned that you got really super good at Instagram. So you have lots and lots of friends and followers on Instagram. Yeah. And there's a there's a course that I'm promoting on Instagram as well. It's called Loving Money and it's seven days to change your self-sabotaging beliefs about money into long-term success. So that's on the site. That's on Instagram as well. Fantastic. And Lise, what's next for you? What, what do you think might be next? I'm in the middle of writing my third book. So I'm writing my third, I'm writing a book proposal for my third book, which again, it's it's very similar to the course. It's called How to Make More Money, or at least that's the working title right now. And it's really looking at your relationship to money. I have focused so much on one-on-one client work in the past number of years. And again, clients all over the world have had celebs. It's been amazing. And post-pandemic, as my children are getting older and older, they're in their teens. They need you so much more when they're in their teens. I am designing more courses, not only for my own lifestyle freedom, but also because I ha- the economy has just, it has shaken people up and spending habits are so different than they used to be that I'm trying to take all of my IP and all of my experience and break it down into a really affordable, really accessible way of people getting this information, even when they're not part of the 11% of women who make 100K or above. Is that the figure? It's 11.1. Globally in Canada, what we're, we're... North America. And it's a, it's an interesting average because the data is more heavily focused on the U.S. that I have found. And, you know, if you're in L.A., that number is not 11.1%. It's like it's, it's, a, it's a continental average. And yes, if you live in this city, you're much more likely to make over six figures. 
but 11.1 is the average, which to me is terrifyingly low because the average cost of living is 85K. So if 85K is what it actually costs to live, and I'm, it's not even living super comfortably, but like living in a way that you can, you can pay for HBO, you can take a vacation once a year. 85K, if only 11% of women are making, you know, $15,000 more than that, like it's in the data right in front of us, most women's mental health is completely dominated by money stuff. So it's like, I am just so passionate about closing that gap and teaching women how to make more money by looking at their relationship to money so they can, I don't know, have a better life, (laughs) have a lot less stress and anxiety and a lot more ease and enjoyment. I'm dumbfounded by 11%. And it's not because I'm making gazillions of dollars a year doing what I'm doing, but that number is terrifyingly low, 11%. And, And then that entered into mental health, mental health and wellness, which we didn't really even talk about. But if you're worried about money all the time, the cascading effect is horrific. Your your relationship with your children, your relationship with your partner, and your relationship with yourself is all suffering. It's all suffering and you're not sleeping well and you're not eating well. Exactly. Any of those things at all, I can just see how this compounds, compounds. And that's, I mean, there's so many layers to this, but this is why we have to talk about money. Like that we have to, because not talking about money is, I want to say it's literally killing women, but I think that's a little bit too dramatic, but we are stressed. We are trying to wear all the hats and play all the roles and be all the things to all the people. And we literally can't afford it Yeah, financially, emotionally, physically, you said it, if you're not sleeping because of anxiety and stress, you're not functioning. You're not functioning in your relationships. The two of us being breast cancer survivors, another thing yeah. we have in common, the cortisol and all of what gets released into your body when you're worried, worried, worried all the time. Yes. Nobody's ever said that cortisol, higher cortisol levels will cause cancer, but it sure ain't going to help the situation. No, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Are there any parting-wise suggestions or <laughs> thoughts from the the bank of the benevolent dictator? Did I get that right? <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> that you, you, would, you would like to leave the world with before we say goodbye? Again, like, I think the most important thing is that, you know, when you change your relationship to money, you change your relationship to life for all of the reasons that we've talked about. And I hope that this is just illuminated, that that is a real thing, you know? You change your relationship to money and you change your relationship to life because our money stuff is almost never about money stuff and it is almost always about how we feel about money. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Lise. Thank you for being so brave to take women out of the dark ages and shine a light on this issue, which we haven't really had the forthrightness to Mm -hmm. come out and say, hey, I don't understand this, or hey, I'm self-sabotaging. So thank you for the brave work you're doing. And please come back and tell us how it's going maybe in a few months when when your next book is ready to go. Here we are ready to talk about it, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. 
For updates between episodes, I'd encourage you to join my mailing list, which you can do at either MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. At most once a month, at least once a quarter, you'll receive an update on the latest resources, topics, and information I've found either super helpful or amazingly impactful. That's it for now. See you next time.